All right, back on the Young Turks. We got a great guest for you guys about a fantastic documentary. And they're in studio. So Allison Clayman is the director of the movie called The Brink, and it's about Steve Bannon. And Marie-Therese Girgis is the producer. So welcome both of you. Thank you, thank you. So my first question is, you followed Steve Bannon around. How'd you get permission to do that? Well, because of this one. Okay. <laughs> uh, very briefly, I worked for him many years ago. I worked at a film company that he ended up running through a series of events. So he became my boss for a few years. And uh, after he joined Trump and after some months of corresponding with him, I asked him if I could make a documentary. And he wrote back the first time saying, you'll destroy me. No, because he knew that I, you know, my politics were very different from his, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept asking. And uh the fourth time, I think, he just wrote back and said, I'll do it. And then I thought, uh-oh. Uh, but that's that's really kind of how it started. Wow, that is interesting. Um, so he made most of his money from Seinfeld, didn't he? You know, that I think that's become a little bit of an urban legend at this point. I, okay. I don't, you know, but sure. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I, I think he made most of his money when he sold an investment, a private investment bank that he started to, to credit Leonet, honestly. But mm-hmm. I think he made... Money from Sunday. Yeah, because he worked in media a little bit, and, and he also worked at Goldman Sachs. So there's a lot of irony there, because you know I want to ask you guys about. He went over to Europe, and there's talk of uh, appealing to anti-Semites there. But I, you know, the movie is coming out March 29th. It premiered on Sundance. So how much uh, anti-Semitism was there in those uh, meetings? I don't know. I, so that's why I'm asking. I don't want to assume anything. I mean, when you sit down and have a strategy session with the, you know, a prominent member of a far right party who has, you know, honored the death of SS, you know, commemorated the death of SS soldiers, um, you know, I think that that to me at least falls in the realm of anti-Semitism by, you know, your your willingness to, of who to cooperate with. Um, he uh, uses terms like uh, globalist, but also more importantly, you know, doesn't mind when people talk. You know, he talks about Soros a lot. All these things that um, I think, in the context of you know our film and the 2018 run up to the 2018 midterms, um, you know, could be directly tied into the ideology of someone who goes out and shoots up a synagogue, much like. The ideology that I witnessed among him and his supporters over that whole year also ties into the shooter in New Zealand and his manifesto. I mean, all to me, it's like all of these ideologies are kind of tied together. Yeah, it's so when the left talks about getting money out of politics, we mean all the money. Uh, I don't know why you would even discriminate on no, like what I want to keep the Muslim money in. Like what? That doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, but for them. They almost never mention a donor that isn't Jewish. So Soros, Steyer, Bloomberg, I've literally, I haven't heard them mention a Christian donor once out of all the different Republicans and all the different times that they that they talk about it. Um, so whereas the biggest donors in the country are the Koch brothers and the Mercers who are both not Jewish, but they give a lot of money to the Republicans. So that's how that game is played. Anyway. So which year did you follow him? Like, was it just this past year now? Yeah, I started um, right after he left the White House. So it was fall of 2017 up through the 2018 midterms. Okay, and so what's he doing in that time? Because he leaves the White House, he goes to Breitbart, 
and then he can't stay there either. So what <laughs> happens next? Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of in the swirl of supporting a, a, a losing candidate that ended up getting the Alabama Senate seat to turn Democratic, his support of Roy Moore, uh, and the book Fire and Fury coming out. In the swirl of all of that, um, he gets dropped from Breitbart and the Mercers stop funding his activities. And um, this, he begins what, frankly, he had been already talking about, which is this sort of pivot to Europe and the world. I mean, he is someone who is out there articulating a vision for a far right, kind of a, a global, interconnected, international far right movement. Um, when he goes to Europe, he has entree to leaders of many uh, leaders and also maybe just random guys from, from a lot of different far right parties. And he's trying to say to them, look, we can, you know, you can have command by negation if you uh, can get a third of the European Parliament uh, in the upcoming May 2019 EU parliamentary elections. You can really run the table by being, you know, an obstruction to things going forward. For him, ultimately, he wants to see, you know, the EU dismantled. Different parties, you know, feel differently about that. Um, but in, you know, closed door meetings that I filmed, they definitely discuss, you know, this is what we'd like to do. We're going to use immigration. We're going to use Islam. We're going to use the migrant crisis as, you know, the kind of common flag that we can wave and and achieve success at the polls so that then we can make change on a kind of continental approach. Yeah, what I'm not positive about is to what end? So- It's a good question. Yeah, because he says he admires the book Camp of the Saints, which is a murderous right-wing book where they slaughter immigrants and, and describe them in the most outrageous, despicable ways. And then the hero of the book goes to try to murder them all. And that's a book they celebrate. So once I saw that, I was already done with them years ago, right? I mean, it's I can't believe anybody would celebrate that book. It's monstrous. And then apparently he said that he admired the architectural perfection of Auschwitz. And okay, I guess he's being clever. Hey, I like their architecture, wink, right? And that's not clever, we all see what you're doing. And then he said that he, Quote, I will always ask, what would Lenny Riefenstahl do, which is the Nazi propagandist. So, okay, so I get that you're triggering people with this. I get that you're, like, you're using Muslims as a way to get to your goal. But, but Marie Therese, what is, what's the goal? I, I would say that, you know, Allison says this too, but I would say that the goal really is a white Christian society in the United States and Europe. Um, People ask me often, and Allison, they ask me a lot because I knew him for a long time, the racist question. And, and I think that, you know, the, what, what is in his heart? Is he, is he a racist? And I think it kind of begs the question, A, like, what do we think racism is? Do you have to just be someone who's foaming at the mouth all the time, you know, saying horrible words about people to be a racist? Or can you be someone who actually maybe is fairly decent in terms of his daily interaction with people of other groups and has friends who are Jewish, as he likes to say, and has friends who are African-American, but who kind of wakes up every day and does work that actually harms those groups. And I think his, you know, I think his ultimate goal is a combination of personal power and a, you know, white Christian society. And I think that the anti-Islam sentiment is probably of all the one that I find the most real. I think it's what clearly unites all of those people. Uh, and 
it's just convenient that the immigrants happen to be Muslim. But when I, you know, when he talks about anything, that's sort of the one topic I find the most actual like zeal. Uh, you know, besides things that he's accomplishing himself, is the sort of I think he thinks Islam is like a is a is is the sort of greatest threat to society. Islam generally the relig- entire religion, and then they say it's just radical Islam, but it's Islam as the entire religion. And you see in the film him fret about Sharia law, just again like with no no specific context, just oh no Sharia law, and also talk about. Um, Birth rates, right? When he meets with uh, European leaders, saying, you know, so what's the birth rate of you know a, a Muslim migrant, you know, family as opposed to a native Belgian family? No, that's it. See, it, who talks? Like, who sits? Around, to me, it's like they're just getting into a room and they're not talking about you know getting money out of politics or restructuring, you know, the or making it better for the white working class. Yeah, they're not. I mean, that that really what it comes down to and what is the shared worldview? I think is you know. Transphobia, Islamophobia, and like a, a xenophobic anti-immigrant sentiment. So, what I find deeply ironic is that they are what they think they're combating, right? So they, you know, it's, oh Sharia law, they're going to enforce their views on everyone else and oppress everyone else that isn't Muslim. No, that's what you guys are doing. That you're trying to do that to the Muslims and everyone else, and like these nationalists. Throughout history, they've always had different targets. It depended on the situation. So in Germany, it was the Jews and the Poles, by the way, and the Roma, etc., and gay people, and we're still got gay people that they still attack and trans people because gay people became a little less acceptable. They had to find a new target, right? And and in the camp of the saints, it's Indian immigrants, mm-hmm. Hindu immigrants, right? Well, now it's Muslims, so okay, they're like, okay, that good. Let's like if I lived in Saudi Arabia, I'd be deeply worried about Sharia law. If I live in Oklahoma, I would not be deeply worried about Sharia law. And Oklahoma passed a law against Sharia law. That's mental. Yeah. There, there are no Muslims in Oklahoma. I think you're really right on about that kind of like projection of you know what, what they actually are and what they fear. And I think um, that was something I saw in over, over and over again when he would talk about the left and how the left is like. You know, they're going to do the left and the Democratic Party, they're going to do identity politics and they're going to play culture. And that's why we're going to beat them in fill in the blank 2020 or 2018. And meanwhile, what I observed following him around is that's exactly the currency that, that he's like playing with. What he does is try to, you know, create a in group identity among. Uh, you know his supporters. It's like you know we're the deplorables, or you know remember this great victory we had in 2016. And everything really does come down to culture. You know the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Look, we're in the French Revolution now. Do you want the world to be this way? Everything is about trying to reinforce this like in-group identity. He makes these propagandist films. I mean, and the, that white people are, are like under threat. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, they they're under threat of. Not getting to oppress others, and so to them that seems like a big well, like what we can't oppress the others with that. We wanted to do Sharia law, you know, from our perspective. How, how dare you take it away from us? All right, but I got I know we're running along, but I got to ask you two more questions. Uh, uh, so the movie came out uh, or is about to come out. Uh, has Steve Bannon seen it? And uh, Marie uh, Therese, do you know what his reaction is? Sure, he saw it. I showed it to him. Um, I think it was a very strange thing to watch himself in a verite film. You know, when someone's been filming you for a year and you're suddenly seeing yourself like that. So I think he was a little bit distracted by that. I think he also probably wanted to kind of play his cards close to the vest. He uh, didn't, you know, he didn't seem to love it or hate it. 
And, you know, but we maintained communication, contact for many weeks after leading to Sundance. We had a lot of logistical things to discuss. And then the reviews came out and he kind of just ghosted me. So I I can only interpret that that's, you know, what he thinks the of the movie. The reviews that I, include, you know, por- damaging portrait of Steve Bannon and this is how you don't give Steve Bannon a platform. I mean. Yeah, I don't know if he knew quite what to make of the movie when he saw it. I think that since the reviews have made clear that the film is seen as being very critical of him and in a way that I don't think he's used to people being critical of him, um, he doesn't seem very happy with me. What do you anyway. think he expected? I think he expected a critical film because he certainly knew my politics. I, he's knew Allison's. I think that what he's used to and what he actually kind of likes is the the criticism that says he's a racist, he's a white supremacist, he's an evil genius, he's Darth Vader because actually all those things are very active and very powerful. And you can actually, you can, those are capital, right? Those are currency. To be called someone who's actually kind of has no ideas, is kind of a loser, is running a two-bit operation, is flying by those pants, like that's not very powerful. And I think our film is the first sort of piece of media of any kind to really kind of expose that, that side of him, which is a reality. Um, and I think that, you know, he wasn't expecting that. Oh, I love that. Uh, I think that's exactly right. That's why we did all the loser Donald segments before the election, because calling him a racist and a bigot, etc., yeah, it only empowers him. Yeah. Uh, it's not the bug; it's the feature. Uh, whereas if you say they're losers and two-bit con artists, uh, that disempowers them, and it has the upside of being true. Yes, it <laughs> so, does. All right. So the movie's called The Brink. It's coming out March 29th uh, in theaters. It's from Magnolia Pictures. You can find out more at magpictures.com slash the brink slash home. Uh, so everybody check it out, uh, sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming in, really appreciate it. Thank you so much really for having us, thank you. thank you. All right, now when we come back, amazing story uh, about human trafficking and Jeffrey Epstein and the powerful people he knew, including Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, uh, Alan Dershowitz, and the list goes on and on. Amazing story, so come right back. Back on the Young Turks, uh, another great guest for you guys. Joining me now is Kachita Sarnoff. Uh, she's the author of Trafficking. She's also the executive director of Alliance to Rescue Victims of Trafficking. Uh, Kachita, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you so very much for having me again. How are you? Hello? Yes, okay, there you are. Sorry, uh, we had an issue for a second. Um, so, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Jeffrey Epstein uh, and then uh, talk about the issue overall. Uh, so uh, for people that are unfamiliar with the story, it is an amazing story. Can you give us a little back, uh, background on what Jeffrey Epstein did in the first place? And then we'll talk about how he largely got away with it and what might be happening now. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, to begin with, uh, um, Jeffrey Epstein was a money manager, a rather substantial money manager. He was estimated uh, to be worth anywhere between one and two billion dollars when he was arrested in 2005. According to the charging documents and the Palm Beach police reports, he trafficked, that is, he solicited prostitution with minors and coerced minors, uh, girls, under the age of 16 to have sex and give him, give him uh, explicitly sexual massages for a number of years. He was arrested in March 2015. And after he was arrested, the chief of police, Michael Ritter, 
decided that this had to be a federal case, given the number of victims who had come forward. And so he took it first to the state attorney. And the state attorney's office, Barry Kersher, at the time, we're talking pre-Me Too and pre-Trump, had a very different position uh, on underage girls who were giving adult males sexually charged massages. And so Barry Kersher gave him only a misdemeanor charge for the victims who had come forward. The chief of police, Michael Ritter, decided that was absolutely unacceptable and took the case to the United States Attorney's Office. At the time, our current labor secretary, Alex Acosta, was the prosecutor. So they begin a federal investigation. This is now between the years of 2005 and 2007. During the two-year investigation, Epstein hired a slew of attorneys, top-notch criminal attorneys, including Alan Dershowitz, who led the state case, who actually was the lead strategist in the state case, Gerald Lefcourt, Martin Weinberger, um, Joseph Robert Josephsberg, and several others. After the investigation terminated, Acosta, as the lead prosecutor, told Epstein's attorneys, Jay Lefcourt particularly, that Epstein had to serve time in jail, that he had to register as a sex offender, and that he had to pay restitution to the victims in the charging documents. At the time, there was one victim, Jane Doe number two, who could have served as the victim that turned the case from a state case into a federal case. Unfortunately, Jane Doe, even though she was subpoenaed, decided she was not coming forward and she did not go forward to prosecute Epstein. So according to what Acosta has told me and according to a letter that he gave to me in 2011 that we published in the Daily Beast, Acosta did not have at least his team of prosecutors, beginning with the line prosecutor, who was a woman by the name of Anna Marie Villafania and Jeffrey Sloman, did not have the victims necessary to turn the case into a federal case. That is what Acosta is contending. That is what he has said. That's what he has repeated. And that that is what he continues to tell me during our conversations over the last 10 years that I have been investigating this case. So is that when, true? Is that true? Well, that's what the charging documents say. And actually, I'm doing some further investigation because I'm going to bring you up to date in a second. But in order to to just finish up what I think is important that your audience needs to know is that this was originally a state case. Barry Kersher, who nobody is pointing fingers at, should be the one that needs to answer why he 
did not want to bring further charges, given the number of victims, at the state level. Why did he not do this? They then tossed the ball to the federal, to the feds, i.e. Acosta's office. And Acosta was then bringing certain charges. But as Dershowitz told me, and I've inter- and I interviewed uh, Professor Dershowitz at length at his home last month, after a, na- a period of nine years of silence where he refused to speak to me, he said to me, without an interstate nexus, meaning a victim that had crossed from one state to the next, it was impossible for the feds to charge him on a, at the federal level. So if we're left with victims that were local victims, all under the age of 16 or 18 primarily, because in the state of Florida, 18 is the age of consent, then we have to ask ourselves, Why on earth did Barry Kirscher not charge Epstein? Okay, so that's back in 2005. Let's move this forward to 2007. Why did Acosta and his team, Villafania and Jeffrey Sloman and the entire USAO team, give Epstein such a lenient deal for the 20 victims who were identified in the charging documents? Even though, and in spite of the fact that they were mostly local victims, the other two victims that eventually came forward had not, were not part of those charging documents. Why did they give him such a sweetheart deal? Well, let's, let's begin with reason number one. They hire Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr, as you know, was special, special counsel during the Clinton Lewinsky affair. They hired Jay Lefkowitz. Jay Lefkowitz was President Bush envoy to North Korea. All this happened in 2007. The non-prosecution agreement for Jeffrey Epstein was negotiated and signed in 2007, which means that the President of the United States was George W. Bush, The attorney general at the time of the negotiation was Alberto Gonzalez. And more importantly, the assistant attorney general under the criminal division was a woman by the name of Alice S. Fisher. I spoke briefly to Ms. Fisher, and basically there was no comment. She did not wish to comment on the case. So what we need to do is, and nobody has when when I say nobody, I mean reporters have not looked into this yet, uh, and I question why. Why is it that nobody has asked the assistant attorney general in the criminal division why Epstein was given such a lenient deal? Because when Acosta went to sign the order, the original order, which was based on a 53-page indictment, basically was going to give Epstein a 10-year jail sentence, restitution and registration. Well, that did not happen. So if anybody has to point fingers, you've got to point fingers at the attorney general and at the assistant attorney general of the criminal division in Washington. And nobody is pointing fingers 
in that direction. Well, I, all right, fine, I'll be the first. I'll point fingers in every direction you just mentioned. Uh, because this case is uh, in, incredibly fishy. So uh, we've got victims as young as 13. Uh, this yes. uh, predator targets troubled kids uh, because uh, he says yes. he's gonna help them and they're more vulnerable. Uh, he, he's got over 20 uh, victims in, in, uh, in the case that you're referring to already. God knows how many victims he had overall. Um, uh, they're the ones that came forward, they're the ones that did not come forward. So this is obviously a massive operation. Let's note the irony of Ken Starr, uh, you know, saying that what uh, Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky was terrible, and then going to defend a pedophile uh, like uh, Epstein. And by the way, Ken Starr is not a public defender. He was paid handsomely to do that. He chose to represent him in that case. So did Alan Dershowitz. But Dershowitz was also Correct. implicated in, in, in this case himself, potentially. So that leads us okay. to the people who are at the top of the food chain and people who are implicated, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. So um, it's convenient for both parties not to investigate this because of all the connections to the Republicans you just mentioned even before Donald Trump. And then Obama gets into office, well, I mean, you really wanna uncover things of uh, the, in places that high. And now, to me though, uh, of all these different things, Conchita, Alex Acosta, the prosecutor who made the, the decision at the federal level, is now the labor secretary? I mean, that's a hell of a coincidence. Well, Sink, I have to tell you um, that I and, I, and I have read over the years, as you know, and I mentioned earlier, I, 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 broke, I broke the, you know, the, the broader case. The case uh, was, re, was reported in 2005 by the, what they call the shiny sheets in Palm Beach. And it never left Palm Beach for years until 2010 when I got a hold of this because I knew Epstein and I knew Glenn Maxwell and I knew most of the players and I thought this is incredible. This is, this is not a prostitution case, which is what the Palm Beach journals kept on call, identifying it. This is a human trafficking case. He, Epstein, is worked as a network. He created a Ponzi scheme of children all underage, most of them, as you said, from troubled families. I interviewed the very first girl who came forward and who was the one responsible for breaking the Epstein case. She is one of a set of twins. She lives in Florida. She was a child who had emotional problems, was going to a school of, uh, for children with special needs. And she was the one who first came forward, of course, at the insistence of her parents. So this child comes forward and then, you know, 20 others come forward. And then when he goes to jail, another 50 underage girls come forward. That's when the girls who actually had been taken from one state to another state came forward. So this from the very beginning had been misidentified. This was never a case of prostitution with a minor. This was a human trafficking case of global proportions. Epstein invested a million dollars in a, a modeling agency called MC Squared. Very important because through MC Squared, he would get visas 
through the owner of MC Squared, a Frenchman by the name of Jean-Luc Brunel, and they would bring in girls from all over the world, including, including Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. So this man created not only a Ponzi scheme, but a network of children who were coming in and out. So why under both administrations, as you mentioned, under the Bush administration, which is where he was not only arrested, but also it was during the time that he pled. And then under the Obama administration, why wasn't this case looked into? I, you know, I I filed a six-part series in the Daily Beast. Nobody at the time wanted to even talk to me. Nobody talked yeah. to me. So I've I've published a book, and nobody wanted to read the book. They just sort of put me on the wayside, as if you know I was I had the plague. So why now? Okay, so is it because Acosta is a is the Labor Secretary under Trump? Well, yes. Is Acosta partially guilty? I think so. I think he should have stood by his sword, and I have told him that. However, he had two. He had basically two options. Option number one: you stand by the sword and you leave the office, and you don't prosecute, and you let somebody else do it. Or number two: he did what he did. And yeah, but beyond that, Conchita, I mean, this random uh, U.S. District Attorney. Turns out to be yeah. the labor secretary under Trump uh, when Trump uh, was friends with Epstein. And that's a weird, weird coincidence. So yeah, well, we're, yes. but Conchita, we're, we're pretty much out of time. I gotta, but I can't help but ask one last question. So it seems like they violated the Crime Victims Rights Act because they did not let the victims know that they had done the secret plea deal. And by the way, he got 13 months and he was allowed to leave prison every day. That's not prison, it's preposterous. It was, it's an unconscionable deal for a, for a pedophile like him. And so, uh, but is there any recourse so that they, the prosecutors, including Acosta, violated the law. The judge has now ruled that they violated the law. Is there any chance that there could be another trial? Well, this is and and this is breaking news. What I'm about to tell you is breaking news. I just received a phone call two days ago from a source in Palm Beach who has seen Epstein ride his bicycle with a very young girl. He is a registered sex offender in the state of Florida, as you know. If Epstein is finally taken into custody for violation of the registration laws, he will be rearrested and there will be a new case. I have already given this information to the pertinent officials at the Department of Justice. I have also given this information to another reporter. So this other reporter can break the story. I will not break that story. But the source came to me, I believe the source, this is the third sighting in, in less than six months of Epstein going down a bike path with a young girl. And by the way, in the state of Florida, registered sex offenders are not allowed on bike paths. In New York, he lives in a house that sits 100 feet from Central Park and another 300 feet from the school of a child, uh, from a school. Why on earth is a Manhattan district attorney not ensuring that Epstein 
moves from that location because he is not allowed to be in a location like that. He's already changed residencies back and forth in the last month four times. So there are a lot of questions that have not been answered that need to be answered. And absolutely, this was this was the cover-up of the century. And why? Well, you will learn from it in my second book, which I'm now writing, and uh, hopefully will be published uh, within a year. All right, Uh, so uh, that's interesting. Apparently, uh, Kachita Sarnoff breaking news there on that. I would love to have a real prosecutor look at the Jeffrey Epstein case, if we can find a non-corrupt one in the country, uh, especially in the Trump administration. Uh, But the book is called Trafficking, and her organization is atrvt.org to help the victims of child trafficking. Uh, Kanshita Sarnoff, thank you for joining us on The Young Turks. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Hank. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. All right. Uh, so we've got another half hour for you guys, uh, if you're members. And uh, we promised you a video of uh, Steve Bannon and his supporters going after the Justice Democrats. So that ought to be interesting. That'll be in the last half hour of the program. If you want to be a member to watch that, tyt.com slash join. And we will see you there in a minute.